We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 this morning. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We've been walking through the book of Galatians, if you haven't been with us, and each week we've tried to follow Paul's argument through the book. We're trying to get at what he's saying. We're trying to get at the mind of the apostle. What we're doing is called expository preaching, and so when we try to get at his mind and expose what the text says, we think that we're able to bow down and exchange our mind for the mind of Christ, that when we read Galatians, we can hear the voice of Jesus because these are the words of Jesus. Last week, we saw that Paul aligned himself with the Jerusalem apostles, that there was no crack in the foundation of the gospel, that they were in one accord. They were in agreement as to what it is, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So they agree about that. And then this week, we're going to see Paul oppose Peter because Peter will be walking in sin. And his point is that his gospel, the gospel that he preaches, that Peter agrees with, is authoritative not only in Galatia, but into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's authoritative even in Jerusalem, even for Peter, the chief of all apostles. So he's going to rebuke Peter, and we want to pull out some significance, right? The main idea of the text is that the gospel governs and is authoritative for life and for practice. It's authoritative even for Peter. But we're going to look at Peter's sin, and we're going to pull out some practical applications, and we're going to see that when the gospel rightly orders our lives, when it governs our lives, that we will follow Christ, and we will be wise, we'll be considerate, we'll remember, and we'll be reminded. Be wise, be considerate, remember, and be reminded is what I hope to show you from the text today. Also, there's some eating involved, and so I hope to peel it back a little bit and go all the way back to Genesis and give us a brief theology of food. I told my wife that, and she got really excited. She's been liking to eat a whole lot recently, being pregnant. But if you, before we get started and do all that, let's, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you this morning. We need your spirit to fill this place, to enable us to hear and to receive your word. Lord, we pray that you would cause your word to grow deep roots in our hearts so that our lives might bear fruit that's holy and acceptable in your eyes. Father, I'm incapable of preaching your word apart from your spirit, and I pray that you would be gracious to me. Father, I'm as a child that tries to grasp a star in his hand. Lord, I pray that even though I won't actually be able to accomplish that task and make your fullness known, that I will be able to at least point to you as the Holy One, that we all might step back and behold you as God. And ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So all the way back in Genesis, we're starting with the theology of food, okay? Just say, why is he going to Genesis? All the way back in Genesis, God creates everything in verse 1. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2 of chapter 1, he begins preparing the land for humanity to dwell in. He starts, he tells the sun to rise, and he starts putting everything in its place. And eventually, he plants fruit trees. 
And in verse 16 of chapter 2, he tells Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God tells Adam to, hear this, God tells Adam to obey me about the tree. And Adam, our representative, he fails, right? He eats. And the first sin of mankind is a sin of eating, of food, of fruit. Fast forward a little bit to the book of Exodus and we see God's people crying out for food from bread from heaven and He feeds His people with manna. God provides for His children. But this bread would only be temporary and they would later put more bread unleavened in the temple and in the tabernacle to remind us of God's good provision. And that bread, that food would point to the bread of life in Jesus. Also, the Jews during this time, they created what are called clean laws or ceremonial laws. And what they are is they're a complicated series of regulations for worshipers to follow in order to be clean and acceptable before God. So you can't go before God unless you've held all these laws, right? You've eaten the right foods. You've done the right things. You haven't been sick and you haven't been around somebody that's been sick. You haven't touched even dead things. Because all these things would make you unfit to go before the Lord. This law served the purpose of teaching people, the people of God, that He is holy. And that we needed to be cleansed to go into His presence. That all men were dirty, unclean. And they needed to be made clean to go into His presence. This law has played out a little bit for us in the book of Daniel. We see Daniel and his friends are at the Babylonian court. They're being trained for that purpose as they're in exile. And they're offered food from the king's table, which is the best food, right? The best food and the best wine. But you know what? Daniel and their names are a little hard. You might know them, though. Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they won't eat the food from the king's table. They don't want to defile themselves because they long for a relationship with the Lord. These ceremonial laws, if you want to be close to God and you're a Jew, these laws, keeping them, are exponentially important. They're invaluable. You must keep them to get into the presence of God. Fast forward to the New Testament. The one to whom these clean laws would point, Jesus Christ comes, and He makes all men clean when they place their faith in Him. He lives the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died. And in Mark chapter 2, we read this. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him, eating. They're having fellowship. You know, when we eat with people, it's always a sign of unity and of fellowship. It's not very often that we eat with people we don't like, right? There's something going on around the table. And then we see in Mark, Jesus says these words, There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Peter's there for all of this. Peter's there with Jesus, eating with tax collectors and sinners. If you don't know what tax collectors are, like you think, oh, they just collect taxes. No, they're bad people. It's kind of like if your neighbor raised your taxes to pay for the opportunity to oppress you. 
right? They're bad folks. He's eating with tax collectors and with sinners, with Gentiles. Peter's there. Peter's there when he says, it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out. It's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. It's true cleansing of the heart that matters. Not exterior, not being a whitewashed tomb as a Pharisee, not strict obedience to the law, but trust in Christ that matters. Peter was there for all, for all of these things. And when we come to our passage in Galatians, he's eating with Gentiles, just as Jesus did, because the gospel that unifies them is the same gospel. It's a gospel without boundaries. It sees not race, culture, or religion. It unifies. And Peter is eating with folks that are different than him. They're having unity and fellowship around the table, around food, around the bread of life. Verse 12, we're finally there, verse 12 now. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But, watch this, watch what happens to Peter now. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So, these Jews... They come in, Peter's eating with Gentiles, he's doing as Jesus did, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, they're being unified in the gospel. But then these other Jews show up, and Peter starts to withdraw himself. He stops stops accepting those dinner invitations, right? He slowly but surely kind of disintegrates those friendships. And he starts hanging out with people that are more like him, because he's afraid. You know, Peter has the right doctrine. He has the right beliefs about the gospel. It seems that he knows Jesus. But it matters not because his life doesn't line up with that. You can have right doctrine. You can have the right head knowledge. But if it doesn't reach your heart, if what happens intellectually and you intellectually assent to, you agree with, if it doesn't make its way into your heart, into your life in a way that's transforming, then it doesn't matter. It's for naught. I had a professor in seminary, his name was Dr. Lederbach, and he had a neat little equation. He said, you have somebody's stated belief, and when you add that to their actual practice, what they actually do, it's going to yield or give you their actual belief. His fancy way of saying that what you live is what you believe. Peter has right thoughts. Peter, the chief of the apostles, walked with Jesus. He has right doctrine. But at this point, when he withdraws from fear of man, He's not living in accord with that. He has sin in his life. You know, when we sin, in that moment, we're confessing that something is more satisfying than Jesus Christ. We're choosing something else in place of God. And we're putting it on his rightful throne. We're looking for our satisfaction in other things. And Peter is looking for his satisfaction by identifying with these Jews, with these certain men that came from James. He's looking for their approval. He's acting out of fear of man, which should make us think. You remember a few weeks ago we were in chapter 1, verse 10, and Paul said, Am I still trying to please man? If I were, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he went on that rant. He shared his testimony, and he brought us up through here, right? He says, The apostles, they actually agree with me. And now he's pointing, I'm not the one that has a fear of man. Look at the chief of apostles. Look at his sin. He's afraid of man. And he's acting in accord with that. I opposed him to his face. That's verse 11. We'll come back to it. Let me ask you a question. What do your actions say about what you believe? If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then I posit to you that the fear of man 
is the beginning of stupidity. So our first point, which is be wise, is also stated, don't be stupid. Be wise. Fear the Lord. Don't fear man. So we've seen that the gospel governs and that even Peter, the chief of the apostles, is subject to the authority of the gospel. And we've seen that from Peter's life that when the gospel governs us, that we should be wise. Now we're going to see that Christians, those that follow Christ, that are governed by the gospel, should be considerate. Why? Well, look with me at verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas, lovable. Remember we said Barnabas was most huggable in high school. Even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, who had went with Paul to all over, to Galatia, to these other churches, to the Gentiles, he planted churches. He'd gone among other people aside from Jews. Even Barnabas is led astray by their hypocrisy. This sin, this hypocrisy, the word hypocrisy actually means um, to act or to pretend. So it has a connotation of putting on a mask and playing a part, being something other than what you are. And I would suggest that this is a sin that as Christians we're all guilty of because none of us can live up to living that true Christian life that Jesus lived. If you're not a Christian, the good news is you're a hypocrite too. But here's here's the better news, is that you can find a home in Jesus Christ because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it's His life that unites us together. It's His death, His burial, His resurrection, His work, not ours. Remember, we can do nothing to gain salvation. It is trust in Christ alone. Sin, when we sin and we put on this mask, when we are um, causing others to stumble, it's it's an infection, right? Peter's leading others astray by his hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. Who are you leading astray with your sin? What sin of yours is causing someone else to stumble and to fall? The only antidote to this disease of sin is the gospel, is trust in our risen Lord. When the gospel governs our lives, we will be wise and we will be considerate because our sin affects our brothers and sisters. So we've seen that when the gospel governs, we would be wise and be considerate. Now look with me at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter has forgotten the gospel. So our next point is to remember. Remember the gospel. The moment Peter starts to separate himself based on class and culture and race is the moment he has abandoned Christ. He has forgotten what unified them there together. Peter's practice, his aligning himself with other people that are just like him, have the same skin color and the same thoughts and and, and beliefs, it puts him in league with the false brothers that Paul mentions in verse 5 of chapter 2. Paul means to point us to that. He's saying, in the same way, these false teachers, these Judaizers are liars, they're false brothers, they're not really in the body of Christ. Peter, when you act this way, you're putting yourself in league with them. You stand condemned. He doesn't mean that Peter's salvation is somehow in doubt. No, he means that he's acting in sin. That his lifestyle right now is affirming beliefs that are contrary to the gospel. 
Peter is looking for his superiority. He's looking to make himself acceptable based on something aside from Jesus. And he's trying to be acceptable to these other men. This type of racial or national pride is just another form of legalism. Legalism is looking to anyone or anything else to try and make ourselves more acceptable or clean before other people sometimes and often before God. We want to be the best, right? Where we go to church, it's the best church. Where we work out, that's the best place to work out. Where we went to college, that's the best college. Unless you went to West Virginia University, that's not true for you. We want our stuff to be the best. We want to make comparisons with other people to find our worth or our value. That is contrary to the gospel. Your worth is found nowhere other than in Jesus Christ. Everything else is but filthy rags. If your identity is in anything else aside from Jesus, it will fail to live up. It will fail to satisfy. Moreover, when we act this way, the the church cannot be what it's called to be when ritual, race, class, and custom, or anything else separate its members from one another. Before salvation, we are all equally separated, and after, we are all equally reconciled. We need not manufacture self-esteem for ourselves or a value of self-worth by comparing ourselves with other groups. The gospel unites us. It tells us we're all unclean without Christ and all clean in Christ. He is the one that gives us value. So who do you think that you're better than? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Have you forgotten the gospel? Remember. We've seen that when the gospel governs our lives, we will be wise, we will be considerate, we will remember, and now we're going to see that we will be reminded. Verse 14 again, but we're going to start at 11 this time. We're going to go to verse 11, then verse 14. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul is opposing Peter to his face. He sees Peter caught in sin and he calls him out. Why? Well, he calls him out very publicly for two reasons. Because of the public nature of Peter's sin. And because Peter is an elder, he's held to a higher accountability. So it needs to be public. Paul calls him out not to trumpet himself as superior to Peter. Not to put Peter down, but to motivate him with the gospel. He has a goal of restoration. Now, we would expect the private, right? We would expect the Matthew 18 model, that Peter would be in sin and Paul would go to him one-on-one and Paul would um, cause Peter to repent and to be restored with Christ. And I hope that kind of church discipline goes on here all the time. When you see somebody in sin, that you're accountable to them and you say, listen, I know that you want to be more Christ-like and so... Treasure Christ above this other thing that you're doing. Treasure Him. I hope that you would be motivating with the gospel, not with guilt. Not, stop, do that, try harder, but see what Christ has done on the cross. Live in light of that. That's what Paul's pointing Peter to. And that's how these lower levels of church discipline, I hope, go on all the time without my knowledge. 
you know, Matthew 18, we'd follow. If, it didn't, if one person didn't have them repent, right, then two or three would go to the same person and say, brother, why don't you change? And hopefully they would repent and be restored to the church. And then if that didn't happen, we would get to the public part, right? Paul jumps over all those because Peter's an elder and because of the public nature of his sin. And he opposes Peter to his face in front of them all. Elders are held to a higher standard. Elders in the Bible, that word is just another word for pastor, teacher, overseer. Those that have been entrusted with guarding the gospel and teaching it faithfully. Peter wants, I'm sorry, Paul wants Peter to know, and he wants all the people that are following him to know. If you are following Peter in this, you're following him into sin. It's the blind leading the blind. It's kind of like that when you have two kids playing and one kid does something wrong and you reprimand the other. And he says, but little Johnny was doing this. Two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. We can't follow others into sin. Paul reprimands Peter here because he loves him. The same way if a child is about to touch a stove and the parent sees the child about to touch a stove, the parent doesn't go, well, you know, he's an autonomous human being and he makes his own free decisions and if he wills to touch the stove, who am I to intervene with his will and his desire? No, a good parent swoops in and takes the kid away from the stove before he burns himself. Love intervenes. Friends, it would be entirely unloving of us to allow one another to continue in sin, in destructive behavior. It would be negligent of us, hateful of us, to allow one another to build the meaning of our lives on anything aside from the perfect, accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Anything else is nothing. Paul is reminding Peter of the gospel. Again, he calls him out publicly, uh, and we see in Timothy 5 for this reason. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Confront him publicly so that others would be afraid of sinning, that we'd fear the Lord and act in wisdom. The church and her members must confront sin. The church must take seriously her own doctrines and her own standards. It must protect the life and the vitality of her people. It must protect our holiness, which simply means we must live in the gospel. We must rest in Christ. He fulfilled our duties for us so that we could rest in Him, so that we could enjoy all the good gifts of life, so that we can go fishing with a clean conscience so that we can sit back and sip on a cup of hot cocoa, knowing that we don't have to earn our salvation, that it's been earned for us. Listen, this is tremendously hard to live like that. I know it's hard. It's hard to be confronted with others, right? But if we won't be confronted by others, how can we, how can we confront them ourselves? Right? If we won't accept accountability, how can we ourselves hold someone else accountable? It's very hard. Dr. Schreiner says it this way, we cannot correct, admonish, and encourage others and at the same time reject any criticism of ourselves. We need to confront one another with gospel words and with love and with affection. I hate to be wrong. I hate to be wrong. And I'm wrong a lot. Chelsea will tell you I'm wrong a lot. But we have to accept our criticism when it comes so that we can be made more Christ-like, so that we can get our lives in line with the gospel. 
That's what happens in the Christian life is we remember the gospel, we rejoice in Christ, we're resting in his work, and then very subtly something happens and all of a sudden we're serving us, the Lord of me, instead the Lord our God, the great I am. And sometimes we need a brother to come alongside us and bear our burdens and say, come with me, come back to Jesus because that's the only place we're going to find true meaning and purpose, life and vitality. He has the words of life. There's nowhere else for us to go. Sometimes being wrong hurts very bad. Sometimes terrible things happen in our lives, but the Lord has this way of working all things together for our good and for His glory. I know that many of you probably have heavy burdens in here this morning. There are things that are pressing in on your life. And perhaps you've heard the phrase... um, Every time God closes a door, he opens a window, right? I think that's a good sentiment, but um, I prefer what Jared Wilson writes in his book, Gospel Wakefulness. He says this, Sometimes when God closes a door, he does not intend to open a window. Sometimes when God closes a door, it's because he wants us inside when the building collapses. Sometimes God wants to use the pain in your life. He wants to use that which you've built your meaning of, the meaning of your life on more than him to break you of it. He wants the building to collapse so that you come to the end of yourself, to the end of your rope, till you realize, I have nothing. And you cry out to Jesus, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. He is everything. He wants to bring you to the end of yourself so that you have no choice but to lean into him with all of your weight. Thomas Watson captures this idea when he says, Christ is never sweet until our sin is felt to be bitter. Sometimes it's necessary that we feel pain, that we go through suffering in life to be united to Christ, to be closer to Him. Allow God to use your suffering. Rejoice in coming to the end of yourself. Let Let it awaken you to what God has done. Rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the fact that God does not fellowship with us on the basis of our works or on the basis of race or of culture, but on Christ, on the basis of Jesus' finished work. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father because the work is done. You need only rest in His accomplished work. You know, this must have been hard for Peter. It's hard to accept criticism. Peter, being who he was, he must, his mind must have went back to the book of Acts. Remember, in chapter 10, he has this dream, and there's all these animals, and there's this veil, and it tears. It's really crazy weird. And there's this voice. It's God. He says to Peter, arise, kill, eat. This actually sounds kind of manly. Kill and eat. But Peter realizes that the, the dream, it means that all foods are clean. Come back to this theme of food, right? He separated himself from the Gentiles as he ate. Separated them from their fellowship. Kill and eat. All foods are declared clean. And then Peter is sent to this guy named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, not a Jew. And Cornelius confesses faith in Jesus Christ as Peter shares the gospel with him. And Peter says these words, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. What is more, Peter must have had the Great Commission fill his mind. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He must have remembered the governing gospel that unites all peoples. He must have thought of the Last Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you all before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it. Not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it as his body would be broken. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Peter must have remembered Jesus going to the cross after that. Must have remembered denying him three times. Must have remembered that conversation with Jesus at the end of John when Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And on the last time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's grieved because he had asked him a third time. He says, do you love me? And Peter says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He must have remembered Jesus saying to him, feed my sheep. How then could he break fellowship with God's people on the basis of food, on the basis of culture? He should have remained around the table with the Gentiles in fellowship with them. How can we break fellowship with one another on the basis of race and culture and these tertiary things? I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you, with my father in heaven, in his kingdom. Peter's mind must have shot forward to what John would write about, that marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Church, that's you. Jesus has made you ready. In the eyes of God, when you're united with Christ, you are a true beauty. You are his bride. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, the righteousness of Christ that we put on. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Peter must have thought. He must have been filled with joy and sorrow simultaneously as he thought about what it cost for him to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Cost Jesus everything. Must have been filled with repentance as it was so hard to accept that he was wrong, that Jesus died. He, the bread of life, had himself broken so that the governing gospel could unite all nations. It is a gospel without boundaries, without borders, that brings all people together in his name. That that meal with the Gentiles, eating with them, is a foretaste of what's to come in heaven as all people from all nations gather around the throne of God and cry, Holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. It must have been filled with tears as he was led to repentance by Paul. Paul's words in verse 16, A man is not justified by keeping the law, not by your works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put on our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by keeping the law, no one will be justified. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In the garden, God said to Adam, Eat, but not of this tree. 
in the garden, God said to Adam, Obey me about the tree. And Adam failed. Jesus would find himself in his own garden. And God would be saying to him, Obey me about the tree. Jesus would not fail. But his obedience, rather than tasting fruit as Adam did, would lead him to taste death that we might taste life. That we might rejoice with him. That we might get the only thing that he deserves. Life together with the Father. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. This is what salvation costs. This is the gospel. So when you're around your lunch tables this afternoon, when you take meals, think about what it costs to have this fellowship. Think about what that food points you to. Marriage supper of the Lamb. Every tribe, tongue, nation. Bowing in worship and exaltation to King Jesus. This gospel is free. This gospel gives life. We find life only in Jesus, our risen Lord. The gospel governs us as it did the apostles. All men are subject to it. It is without borders and it cannot be stopped. When we follow Christ, we learn that we can be wise because of the gospel. That we can be considerate of one another because of the gospel. That we can remember the gospel because of Jesus. And that we ought to be reminded of the gospel because we will stumble and fall, even Peter did. Because of Jesus. Let us together join in singing the hymn of invitation and survey that wonderful cross that accomplished this work for us, that unites us with God.